College can be expensive, but saving now can help your students save later. Give your child's college savings a boost by registering for a chance at a $1,000 savings plan deposit for 6th through 12th graders. Sign up today at iowastudentloan.org slash register. This is America with Rich Valdez, powered by PolitiWeek.com. And Rich Valdez is with us, former Christie administration official. You work for Chris Christie, you've been in politics, done a lot of public service stuff. Rich Valdez, columnist now with the Washington Times. This is America. Richie V, you're on the air with the nation. The nation. This is America with your host, Rich Valdez. All right, America, what's up? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, El Conservador. Some call me the voice of Hispanic conservatism. I thank you all for listening. Welcome to the program. Today, we're going to talk about the Texas case, the Texas case that's making headlines everywhere. Is it the be-all, end-all? Some say yes, some say no. I may have some skepticism, but I do want the president to win. So we're going to jump into that. But we're also going to talk about what's happening in Cuba and what's going on with all of this tech tyrant totalitarianism with social media and the media as a whole. Let's jump right in. It's a very sad day in our republic when you have these constitutional cases that are so meritorious and they get tossed out by judges, by Supreme Court Justice Alito, nonetheless. Now, some are saying, well, give him a break, give him a chance. They might be holding out for the Texas case. That very well may be. Although scholars like Mark Levin disagree. And I understand his logic because I think he's right. If the case in Pennsylvania had constitutional merit, the court should have taken the Pennsylvania case, not picking and choosing which case they want to take and which one they don't. Now, others are arguing and saying that while the case in Pennsylvania had constitutional merit, it was being brought by members of the citizenry, not by a state that has unique standing. Now, I'm, I, don't, I can't argue against that. I don't know that states have unique standing or not. Good question for the great one and other scholars. But Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas, he believes that states have unique standing and that he's bringing this action on behalf of a state and has gotten other attorneys general to join him in this battle. And this is a big deal. And not because it's a big deal because it's a slam dunk. I don't believe there's such a thing as a slam dunk because I think the PA case was a slam dunk, but they ignored it. They ignored the PA case. And I think it's wishful thinking on our side to say that, oh, they did that because they know, you know, they're going to pick and choose their battles and they're going to, that may be the case, but I still think it's naive. To think that it's okay, or erroneous, I should say, it's erroneous as well as naive to say that we should just toss out a solid constitutional case. Why can't we do both? Why not say, boom, this is done? Now people are saying, well, the Pennsylvania case, what their um, their what was injurious to them, you know, the the loss that they suffered will be resolved in the Texas case. Now, if that's the case, Amen, God bless, Hallelujah, and I hope that's the case. I don't want to sound like a naysayer. I'm pushing for Trump big time. I'm pushing for America. I'm pushing for the Constitution. I'm just saying, I do agree with the idea that, you know, when a cop pulls you over, they don't go, oh, what's that? What do you got, a roach from a, you were just smoking a joint? Oh, what's that? A bag of heroin? All right, book him on the heroin. Let him go on the, they don't do that. They book you on the weed. They book you on the heroin. They book you on suspended license. They book you on no insurance. They book you on whatever they can. And then maybe the prosecutor will say, you know, whatever. So my point is, 
picking and choosing things is not really a thing. But Attorney General Ken Paxton, he did have uh, some comments on this case, and I want you to hear what he said. Check this out. It's really important to my state that my voters be represented. And if other states don't follow the Constitution, and if their state legislature isn't responsible for overseeing their elections, and we have other people who are not under the Constitution, under the Constitution supposed to be doing this, it affects my state. And so our job is to make sure that the Constitution's followed and that every vote counts. And in this case, I'm not sure that every vote was counted, not in the right way. Well, Paxton makes a solid case. And in effect, this is what the Pennsylvania people were saying. This is what so many people are saying. This is actually what Bush was saying in Bush v. Gore. And it came out in the opinion from the Supreme Court that if you don't count the votes the same way, you're violating the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, saying you have to treat all the votes the same way so that you're not disenfranchising anybody. You're not affecting or injuring anybody's suffrage, their right to vote. Again, not a scholar, not a lawyer, but I do know how to read and I know what the Constitution says. So this does seem open and shut. But again, sometimes politically, there is a lot of grace, area and nuance. So we have a couple of more clips of Attorney General Ken Paxton clarifying his position. Check this out. It is the responsibility of state legislatures per the Constitution to set the, the rules for election of electors. And in this case, Those were overridden in the four states we're talking about were overridden by other officials, whether they were judges or other governmental officials. And that's not the way our Constitution works. And that's the challenge we have in front of the court. Can this be overridden by uh, people who are not responsible under the Constitution for doing this? I think that's pretty clear. I think that's pretty solid. He's, in my opinion, made an effective case exactly like the Pennsylvania people are saying. The difference here is. He's not coming as the injured party. He's representing the state. And in his opinion, as the attorney general, he's saying my state suffered injury here because you have disenfranchised people in other states. But we are part of a common union known as the United States. And as part of the Electoral College and we're all trying to vote, not counting votes right there is messing up everybody in America. It injures the entire Electoral College. I think it's a solid sound argument because we're all participating in one big overarching election, even though there are multiple elections in multiple states, we're voting for a federal office. It's the only office, along with vice president, that all Americans vote for. Everything else is statewide at best and countywide or, you know, as far as the congressional district goes. So I think Paxton raises a solid point. And It seems uh, President Trump is also banking on this, and I'm happy to see that he's enthused, although I have not seen him lose enthusiasm. I mean, the president has been going, you know, full steam ahead, full speed ahead, full everything ahead. He's been going hard and hitting it hard. So I want to talk a little bit more about what's happening in, in Texas and in particular what Trump tweeted. And here's the president. We will be intervening. Let me do it in my president voice. We will be intervening in the Texas, plus many other states, case. This is the big one. Our country needs a victory. Let me tell you, I could not agree with him more. I'm glad he thinks that this is the big one. I want to believe that this is the big one because I do believe it's solid. I believe Pennsylvania was solid. I'm going to go out on a limb. I thought Sidney Powell's cases were solid. I thought Lynn Wood's cases were solid. I thought Jenna Ellis's cases were solid. The problem here wasn't the attorneys. The problem has always been the judges. 
judges that don't have, as my dad would say, no tienen cojones. They don't have the balls to take the case. They're afraid. They give in to the mob. That's the damn problem. The corruption is spread so damn vast that we don't know who to trust anymore. Even people that were once solid. I mean, let's just take a step back. Who were the, the lawyers? Who was the Solicitor General? Right? The Solicitor General is the United States top attorney to argue in the Supreme Court. Solicitor General of the United States. Who was it, you know, way back in the, in the Bush administration? I mean, in the, uh, yeah, the, George W. Bush 43 is who I'm referring to. It was John Roberts. He was also um, very active with the Republican Party. He was a solid guy by all accounts. You think John Roberts doesn't know what he's doing? No, he knows exactly what he's doing. And now he's chief justice. This guy knows what he's doing. Not his first rodeo. A guy that was hired by the country, appointed by the president to argue in the Supreme Court. John Roberts is not a clown. He may be a clown today, acting like a clown, but he's not a clown. He's not a fool. So when he punted this Pennsylvania case and all of these other things, was it his infinite legal wisdom? Or was it him saying, I don't want to touch it. I don't want, I don't want to be a part of this. I'm going to do what I got to do. They, they got whatever they got, whatever the leverage is. Blackmail, bad reputation. In my opinion, I like to go with the, uh, the path of least resistance. And in my opinion, the path of least resistance here is for Roberts to simply say, I want to go down as one of the best chief justices ever. I don't want to get my hands dirty and marred by this controversy. So I don't want to deal with it. I think that's simply it. They don't want to be victim to the scorn of the media. Punto y final. That's it. Now, who was one of the lawyers or two of the lawyers, right? Wasn't Neil Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch, wasn't he a lawyer in the Bush 2000 recount? Wasn't Justice Amy Coney Barrett a justice on the 2000 recount? Wasn't she one of his lawyers? Yes. Bing, ding, ding, ding. You are correct, sir. She was, and I'm not, I'm not questioning her. I do think she's solid. So the question now becomes, as we speculate and we play this waiting game, which comes on Thursday at 3 p.m., will they take this case? Will they not take this case? Will they take this case and actually hear the case on the merits, on the papers, as it's been laid out by Paxton? And again, Paxton, he, he laid this out very clearly. You know, one of the things that makes lawyers, radio hosts, TV hosts, people that have to explain sometimes complex ideas and break them down into small, understandable nuggets, also known as articulation. People that can articulate well are worth their weight in gold. I'm not always great at it. I'm not. I try to be better at it every day because sometimes you have a really big idea and it's hard to consolidate that into a smaller, simpler idea without losing the full context of everything, without just saying the bad guys are doing bad things. The good guys are going to step in. Everything's going to work out. <laughs> That's a little bit uh, dangerous, in my opinion, because you oversimplify to the point where if it doesn't happen, people go, hey, what the hell? Oh, it's rigged. Listen, it is rigged, but it's very complicated in the way that they've rigged this thing. So listen to Attorney General Ken Paxton from the state of Texas, who is now suing the states of Wisconsin. He's suing the state of Georgia. They're suing the state of Pennsylvania and Michigan over their state being disenfranchised because of irregularities in their states that they're failing to handle. State to state lawsuit. 
They're saying this is the the best way. Maybe that's the secret sauce. I don't know. But listen to Attorney General Paxton talk about the irregularities with the signatures and why that's important. Check this out. In in almost all those cases that we have, we have states that that allowed mail-in ballots in cases they were not supposed to. They allowed for non-signature verification, which is really important. So when you you request a mail-in ballot, you have to sign for that application, and then they'll verify when you send your ballot in on a sleeve of the ballot. Usually they'll verify that signature to ensure that those two signatures match. Well, if you just waive those requirements, you have no way to go back and verify that the person that requested the application is the person voting. That's a pretty important thing when in Pennsylvania you go from 233,000 uh, mail-in ballots four years ago to 2.5 million and the difference in the election was only 81,000. That's a very important issue to, to ignore. Duh! I think so many people have said that, but magically he had the right words. That was so smooth. I think anybody could understand that. And that is the beauty and the gift of articulation. He was able to really put it out there. He chose the right words. That wasn't long. That was less than a minute. In one minute, he explained what sometimes takes me 30 minutes, an hour in a a radio show. (laughs) Kudos to him. That's why he's making the big bucks. I think he he nailed it. And he's got a couple more, and I want you to hear them. I want you to listen to his... reasoning on why this violates the Equal Protection Clause. Go. I think that explains the wisdom of the Constitution requiring that a a statewide body uh, of legislators make the rules instead of allowing county by county distinctions that are different where people are treated differently in different states. And I think that was part of the genius of what the founders put in place is making sure that everybody in the state was at least treated the same. In this case, in all four states, we have county by county distinctions that treated voters differently, and we therefore have unreliable results, and that's a problem. Uh, yeah, Un- unreliable results is a problem. This is why he's seeking a remedy in the United States Supreme Court, and not him, Ken Paxton, but the state of Texas is suing their sister states, these sibling states, as he put it in the argument, which I thought was really well put. Uh, and again, I thought the Pennsylvania case was really well put. I don't want to say this, like Trump is saying, this is the big one. God bless him. He He's seeing something that I haven't seen, and that's why he's president, because he can see things that many of us can't see. But I don't see how this one is bigger. I see how it's different. I don't see how it's bigger. But with more states coming on board, I think that is um, definitely helpful. And I would love to see if they could attach counties, but oh, I don't think the Constitution allows for counties to be recognized at the Supreme Court the way it allows for states to be recognized. Because if it did, with 81% of all counties in America being won by Trump in this current contested election, I think he'd have a lot of standing. But all that being said, my opinion is not as relevant as that of the plaintiff and the the uh, defendant states. Check out what he has to say about the remedy. We can't go back and let the put the genie back in the bottle because we don't know how to match up signatures anymore because they, the, they were separated from the ballot. Since we can't go back and do that, we want to go back to the legislature and let them make a decision since they were elected by the people of those states. There you go. That is the case that he made. That's the bottom line. That's what we have to see if the Supreme Court is going to take up tomorrow. I'm not going to add to that because I think he left it extremely well put. We're just getting started. I'm going to get back to those tech tyrants and the totalitarianism, what's going on in Cuba, Ivanka's new house, and so much more. Keep it locked right there. You're listening to This Is America. This is America. Para Inglés, o primo número dos. Para Rich Valdez. Y esto es America. Ahora. 
Bienvenido, America. Welcome back. And I want to get into what's going on with the totalitarians in Cuba, what's happening with artistic expression, as well as what is going on with Twitter and the rest of the Silicon Valley and all of this crazy censorship. So give me a tweet, give me a parlay, give me whatever you got. I'm at Rich Valdez on all social media, and I want to hear what you have to say, and I want to thank you always for subscribing to the podcast. We hit number 50-some-odd, 57, 53, something like that. Great place to be in the top 100 of the Apple political chart, and I can't get there without you, so thank you very much. Of course, all of the episodes are archived at richvaldez.com. I want to thank you again for subscribing to This Is America with Rich Valdez. I want to talk about totalitarianism and how it's affecting many different things, many different ways. For example, in Cuba. Yesterday when I was driving home, I uh, got a call from an old anthropologist friend of mine. A mentor, honestly. He's a good guy, very well established in politics. He's been a bureaucrat in the state of New Jersey. He was an appointee in the administration of uh, the first President Bush. So he's an old guy, and he goes way back, and he knows a lot of things. And he's a Cuban exile. And he always gives me a call with these interesting stories. And one of the stories he he brought up was how Ivanka Trump is buying a new house. And he's like, do you care? I was like, no, I didn't know. And I didn't care. He goes, oh, because it's plastered all over the media. He's like, what do you think about what's going on in Cuba? I said, what's going on in Cuba? And he said, my point exactly. That the media was ignoring what's going on in Cuba. And for the last week or so, there's been a huge uprising, the biggest uprising that Cuba's ever seen since the Castros assumed control of the island. And I was like, wow, I didn't know. And he's like, yeah, check it out. Wall Street Journal came out a few days ago, uh, about a week ago now. So I looked up and I found this article. I'm not going to read it all to you, but there's a few pieces that I think are interesting. And it really is a good article that you should read in its entirety because it really explains the story soup to nuts. But it says the Cuban leadership confronts a rare dissident movement. Musicians, writers, painters, black activists peacefully challenge communist government's grip on expression. An alliance of hip-hop musicians, writers, and other artists known as black activists have emerged as a driving force against censorship and government repression in Cuba, prompting a rare communist government action to hold talks about freedom of expression. Hundreds of Cubans, many of them young artists from elite schools, protested in front of the country's stately neoclassical Ministry of Culture in Havana, an upscale Vedado district overnight, about a, eight or nine days ago now on a Friday night, very rare in Cuba, saying, we demand the right to have rights the right of free expression, of free creation, the right to dissent, said Catherine Bisquet, a young poet. Others also complained. The protest sparked by the violent arrest on Thursday of members of a small artist collective. And they were joined by ordinary Cubans as well as some of Cuba's leading artistic lights and luminaries, including the influential film director Fernando Perez and renowned actor Jorge Perugorria. How's that for a Spanish name? <laughs> After hours of protests and singing and poetry, the ministry made the unusual move of allowing some 30 protesters inside to discuss their grievances with senior officials. Now, yeah, the reason it's rare is because in the past, when this has been done, you know what they did? They killed you. Okay, maybe I'm lying. They would arrest you, imprison you, and then maybe they would kill you. The bottom line is they would always quash your speech. The, govern the government in Cuba considers many of them to be U.S.-financed enemies of Cuba's revolution. Hmm. Quote, 
We described the fear and harassment that we experience every day and we told them that we didn't feel represented by them. Said Amnita de Cardenas, one of the activists who entered the ministry, their response was somewhat cynical. They told us they had no knowledge of what was happening, she said by telephone from Havana. The protest was possible because of their courage, and it's likely the largest peaceful demonstration since Fidel Castro took power in 1959, marking growing dissatisfaction by the island's young artists. Now, this goes on and on, and it talks about Cuba's totalitarian control and how it's facing growing challenges less than two years after it allowed internet services for mobile phones, making social apps a tool to organize spontaneous protests. This is so true. Some of the best commentary, anti-communist commentary that you can hear is on Facebook, right from Cuba, doing it from their, fa- from their smartphone. They now know what the rest of the world looks like. And it's, it's a great article. and It goes on to talk about the archipelago of independent media, and it's excellent. And that, that's the segue that I'm looking for to talk about how we're experiencing that here in America. We've always had freedom, freedom of expression, the pamphleteers. We had printing presses. We were able to print the Bible. We were able to print uh, Thomas Paine's Common Sense. People could talk. You could jump on a soapbox and say what you wanted to say wherever you wanted to say it because this is America. However, in recent years, they've figured out how to destroy the system using the system. They've figured out, here's what you do. We don't need to take over the government like we've done in other places and get our people in there. We'll just take over institutions. If it's the media that's allowing all of this liberty to spread, let's take over the media. How's that? If it's parts of the government that need to be taken over, we'll take over those. And little by little, those that espouse this totalitarian Marxist belief have done just that. And they've crept their way into the Silicon Valley. They've crept their way into Twitter, Facebook. You name it, NBC News, CBS News. So people think, oh, it's a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. I don't think they got together and conspired. They just literally believe this. They took over the universities. They taught young people for the last 40, close to 50 years now, that socialism is good. It's social justice. We're wrong. Capitalism is bad. Capitalism is racism. You know, racism is bad, right? So capitalism is racism. These things are terrible. And no matter what they do, they divide and they conquer. Time and again, they divide and conquer. They divide and conquer. That's what they do. Use that system to corrupt the system. You've heard Alinsky say it. These are Stalinist ideas. So it comes as no surprise that they did that. So now when you have some patriots that get together and say, you know what? We like free speech. Now there's competition. And uh, our buddy, Dan Bongino, he's invested into Parler, which is a hugely growing social media platform, and just got some ink uh, yesterday in the Wall Street Journal. Twitter has a competitor. It's by James Freeman. Twitter has, and this is just a little bit excerpt from it. Twitter has never been a money machine like Facebook has or like Google has. But Twitter has completely dominated the market it created for 280 character political commentary. That's the truth. Until now, having chosen to use its power to advance a partisan agenda, the social media company seems to have attracted a formidable competitor. So formidable that other media outlets backing Twitter's agenda are now taking aim at the upstart. The upstart is called Parler, founded in 2018 and lately adding millions of users because of its promises to be an open platform. And that's exactly what it's doing. It's allowing free speech. I got to tell you, the speech is so free. I'm constantly banning people that are lying and saying bad things and pretending to be people that they're not. But guess what? They have never censored anything I've said. 
It self-polices. And that is the beauty of Parler. You can say your piece without being afraid of being uh, taken down or like in Twitter, where if I follow some other prominent Hispanic conservatives, they unfollow them and they unfollow us from each other so that we can't communicate even through direct message. Happened to me with Salsa Sensation Willie Colon. He followed me. I followed him. We were chatting. They split us up. I just woke up and I wasn't following him. He wasn't following me. Tried to follow him back. I got him followed again. They just won't let us talk. And he's a, a former Dinkins Democrat in New York that became a Trumper. And he's got 5 million followers. So they're like, you know, we don't want you in touch with the guy on the microphone. The other conservative Hispanic. We don't want that. And they can do that because they have these protections. And that's a whole nother show. But my point is, those are the things that are happening. That's real. And I'm on Parler, by the way. If you are and you're not, you should be at Parler. Uh, excuse me, at Parler. <laughs> at Rich Valdez on Parler. It's Parler.com. And you can get the app in your app store. But the point I'm talking about with all of this is how the totalitarian regimes do what they do. And even if we're not in Cuba, even if we're not on Parler, we're seeing it time and again. Look at Trump. He puts these messages out about the, the importance of this Texas case or the Pennsylvania case or all this evidence, all these videos, and it gets shut down because the totalitarians and the tech tyrants are always doing what they do. It's the Marxism that's within the media, the Marxism that is within the government, the Marxism that's taken over or crept into social media, into Twitter, into Facebook, into the school systems, where now you have so much of this that there is no more balance. We don't have parity anymore. What we have is an outright assault on traditional Americanism, an assault on traditional capitalism. They use the system to burn down the system. This is what they do. It's how they've been trained. And this is why I always say, if you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything. We have to stand for something like the Cubans are. They're standing up to the totalitarians, like the people at Parler, like Mangino, like John Matz, these people that said, you know what? We're going to make a difference. Everybody has their own way of doing it. I do it on this microphone. You do it how you do it. But we have to do it and we have to do it together. We have to do it for America. Because Sir Edmund Burke and Lord Acton and others have been quoted saying, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people like you and me and the rest of us to sit here and do nothing. So do something. Raise up. Recruit people. Start to defend yourself. Uphold your constitution. Because America needs you more now than she ever has. Hasta la próxima. I am Rich Valdez and this is America. This is America. 